You're listening to I'dRatherBeWriting.com, and today I'm talking with Joe Makowitz, uh, who is a co-author with Catherine Riley of Visual Composing, Document Design for Print and Digital Media. And I had the opportunity to read this book. Uh, uh, the publisher sent me a free copy, and I, I read it, and I really was excited to do a podcast with Joe because um, I'm interested in the visual aspect of design uh, in terms of technical communication. Um, I, re I really think that's one of these underemphasized areas in tech comm that, that really, because it's underemphasized, accounts for a lot of the negative reactions about manuals and so forth that users get. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm talking with Joe and, and I just want to ask her some questions and we have a conversation about this book. Uh, first, Joe, mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about why you decided to write it. Um, what, what prompted you to get into this topic? Well, Kathy and I had been talking about this book project probably starting about six years ago. We were both um, working at University of Minnesota Duluth, and we were both doing technical writing courses and um, also business writing courses. And we just noticed that um, we didn't see a lot of coverage in the current textbooks about the kinds of decisions that technical communicators or professional communicators have to make on a day-to-day -day basis about integrating verbal and visual elements. So we saw this as a gap in what was going on in textbooks. We knew that there were some textbooks that were just completely devoted to document design, um, and, and that's fine. But we know that as technical communicators, you have to try to, try to integrate the two. And we wanted to do that. We saw that there were document design books out there, um, but in another way, we were interested in looking at, and I think this is where I'm, this is the reason I'm most proud of our book. I think it takes a really strong research, um, it takes a really research-driven look at integrating verbal and visual design. Um, and I think that's, that's its highlight, that's its real strength, that we're not talking about folklore or recommendations that have just simply been passed down. We're actually looking at empirical research and trying to figure out, okay, what does that say about the design choices that we, that we should make? So I think that's, you know, we started years ago and uh, it took us a while to get it written and to to do the research and figure it all out but i think we did a pretty good job in the end yeah you mentioned that you you did a lot of research for this book and, and that mm -hmm. you wanted to emphasize that in in the the kind of mm -hmm. assertions you're making i totally agree with that you've got a lot of research in there and it was great to see some of these things that maybe i'd heard or or was unsure about backed up by people who'd actually done studies and and mm -hmm. uh let's jump into that because there really are a lot of design decisions that people make as they're creating a document, even if they don't even have a single picture in there. Uh, typography, headings, the width of the line, the layout, justification, yeah. tables, uh, color, all this stuff. So uh, let's start with typography because that's where you start with, that's the topic you start mm -hmm. with in your book. Um, for yeah. somebody who's designing a, a manual, what kind of type should they use? Well, it's, you know, that's a big question, um, but it's really something that we try to look at using that research-driven perspective and thinking about, okay, 
making a, de a determination based on what's most legible and what's most readable. So one of the things that you'd want to think about if you were creating a manual is, okay, well, how long are the lines on the page? What sort of tone am I trying to set? Is this something that's a more friendly document or something that needs to look particularly professional? So we talk about typography in terms of making these sorts of decisions and looking at different typefaces, not just for their legibility, but and by that I mean how identifiable are the letter forms themselves, but also how comfortable is that typeface to read. And in part, that's going to be determined by how long the, the lines are in the document, um, what size type that the, um, the designer is using. So there's a lot of choices that, that people can make, even when we're talking about something, you know, as basic or as kind of prototypical technical communication as a set of instructions. Um, I think our, our, our chapters do a pretty good job of sort of walking people through it. And there's more than one answer, of course. Um, but there's, what I think is particularly interesting is there's been, you know, some research done, even dating as far back as the 1950s, maybe even farther than that, about um, line length and, and typeface. And then one really great researcher, more, more current researcher named Ava Brumberger, did a lot of work in the early 2000s and continues on to do work in typeface personality and thinking about, okay, are we using uh, a friendly typeface or professional typeface and other sorts of tones, which you would call to typeface tones as well. Let's, let's just hit this at a more basic level too, because you're right, there are so many other var variables that come into play, like this column width and, mm -hmm. and, and, and other factors. And type size. Yeah, and the yeah. size. But the one basic question people have is, do I use a serif font or a sans serif yeah. font? So the traditional wisdom, yeah. right, is that for print documents, you use a serif font, and for online, you use a sans serif, meaning without the little uh, little mm -hmm. wings. Without the yeah. little feet. And, and you mentioned that yeah. uh, one of the reasons that, that serif fonts are traditionally used in print is because, quote, some document designers have postulate, postulated that serifs lead a reader's gaze along the baseline. Uh, the individual yeah. line on, on which letters sit. Do you, do you find that that's uh, generally good advice to follow, the serif font it, for print? It's not bad advice. It's not bad advice at all. You know, I don't know if there's really research to back that up so strongly. That same. Um, but I think now there's a more nuanced view of what goes into creating um, a sort of a typeface that is comfortable to read, either in print or online. And there are typefaces designed, as you know, your listeners are sure to know, for you know, print documents, um, ones that are meant to be read on a page, and ones that are meant to be displayed, like on a poster or in a in a you know a whole building-sized advertisement, say for a car. Um, and then there are ones that are designed to be read online. Uh, so. Well, I think a designer's not going to go wrong picking a typeface that's, you know, pretty commonly used in print documents, and it's a it's a serif font. Um, I think the de designers today can also think about typefaces and all the other variables too, like the size, the shape, um, the what what uh, designers would call a thick to thin transition of the strokes of the letter form. If those things are pretty elegant, pretty even,
then maybe you can use a sans serif font in a print document as well. You know, the um, it, it's okay to do as long as some of the other characteristics that make a, a typeface readable, comfortable to read across a line, as long as those characteristics are there. So I think it's a good rule of thumb, but I think that as designers kind of progress and look at more typefaces, they can probably make some other decisions as well. Now, when you when you have a heading and a subheading, mm -hmm. uh, do do we typically want to make those contrasts by choosing um, the opposite? If you, if you used a serif for print, mm -hmm. should we use a sans serif for the headings and vice versa? You know, I tell my students that um, I do a lot of teaching also here at Auburn in the um, the College of Business, and they folks just want you know, a simple guideline to follow when they're just starting out. And I completely understand that. So the guideline I give people is, okay, pick a sans serif font for your headaches, pick a serif font for your body text, and you're pretty much not gonna go wrong as long as you're not picking some really funky or ornate heading or body text font, right? I mean, as long as we're in the realm of pretty normal professional looking fonts, you're gonna be okay. And I think it's a good, a good idea to use that sans serif serif distinction or differentiation between headings and body text. Um, the concept behind that really though is that you could, you should just differentiate. There should be contrast. So as long as you're using a sort of professional typeface, you could use a serif font for the headings and a, and a sans serif for the body text as well. So I mean people can mix it up but I think you're right. People want a sort of um, kind of guideline to go by to make their lives easier. And I think that's a, a pretty safe one to, to use. Sans serif for the heading, serif for the body text. Now, the next decision a lot of people make is the size of the mm -hmm. font. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen font that's really small and, and mm -hmm. font that's really big. Um, what, what would you recommend to people as kind of a standard size of size to go with yeah you know I think the defaults in a lot of our word processing software is pretty safe um, if you're talking about um, in America letter size document or let's say in Europe a kind of a4 paper size I think it's pretty safe to go with either an 11 point or a 12 point um, font for body text course you can manipulate that if you're changing up the sort of layout of your of your document if your line length is getting changed let's say you're doing a trifold brochure on that on that one page and so all of a sudden you're talking about having three columns six panels um, for a two-sided document so maybe you could do something that's a little bit smaller typeface because the line lengths will be a little bit s smaller and that means the eye is going to have to travel a little bit less farther to um, complete the to complete the line so I would say that what you have as a default is pretty close to being a good one to use 11 or 12 but when you start making a little bit of uh, changes in your design, then you can start playing around with modifying the typeface size. And I think indeed you should do that too. Yeah. And um, it, you did mention in the book that if you have like an older audience, they, they prefer a little larger, like 14 points. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. There's a, really a lot of interesting research on, um, on older readers or users. 
and a lot of really interesting work on accessibility. And by that I mean, well, I'm talking specifically, or well, not specifically, but in particular, about websites. And I think that um, people who are designing online documents, you know, would do well. Not, it, it's really not just about reading my book or our book. It's kind of tapping into some of the web uh, W3C's recommendations, um, looking at their site through, you know, some sort of um, checker, such as the Wave Checker for accessibility. But yeah, I mean, as far as print documents go, I think we need to think about different kinds of users or readers, um, even in print documents too. And yeah, there's some research to show that people like a little bit bigger font <laughs> when they're, um, you know, people who are a little bit older might find that particularly helpful, yeah. It, in fact, just recently I increased the font size on my blog because I, uh -huh. I, I myself like the font to be a little bit bigger. I mean, when I'm reading tons of stuff online, it's just a little mm -hmm. easier to lean yeah. my head back and, and just take it in. Now, the other thing that, uh, th now this is one of these elements that just baffles me, uh, the characters per line. And in your book, you, you said there's some controversy about this. Um, you said that one, one researcher tested participants reading a news article displayed at 35, 55, 75, and 95 characters per line. And as I understand it, every letter and every space counts as a character. Uh, and you said that the people who read the 95 character per line text read faster than the other texts. Um, but you said that people were kind of split. The uh, reader preference tended to cluster at the extremes. So 60% choosing either 35 characters per line or 95 characters per line. Um, so what do you make of this number of characters per line? I, I mean, essentially... Should we make the, the columns narrow or should we make them kind of semi-wide or does it even really matter? You know, Tom, I can't remember what, what chapter that's in. Could you tell me? <laughs> sure, sure. Sorry. That's, I was a, on, that's a real specific one for me. So I was on page 49. Oh, uh, okay. um, it, let me just read one more, one more sentence yeah. from there. Uh, when asked to choose their least preferred line length, 45% of the participants chose 35 characters per line, while 55% chose 95 uh, characters per line. I have this dilemma because on one of my, on a, a wiki that we have at my work, mm -hmm. the, the characters per line is something crazy. It's like 200 or something, right? It's just this huge expanse of text. And it always drives me crazy. And I, I know that newspapers mm -hmm. have really narrow columns yeah. because it's supposed to improve readability but but this study seemed to suggest that you know people weren't always sold on on that really narrow line like some people kind of preferred the 95 characters per line um yeah well i mean i think that what part of that gets at is the kind of work that you have to do um to move back and forth um in a short line length like that um, but yeah, the finding is rather surprising too, and I don't know if there's been too many um, researchers kind of postulated on why it is that what we would consider sort of medium line length, like that 60 characters per line, wouldn't be a little bit more comfortable. But and it is, I thought it was sort of surprising too that there would be um, that people would say that they prefer uh, something that's longer. It's, of course, going to depend a lot on the size of the type as well. 
But I've noticed that too about newspapers and what and how they're so thin. I think a lot of it has to do with um, trying to fit the maximum amount of type onto a page that you that you potentially can um, with newspapers. But I think that there wouldn't be a lot of research to say that people actually do find that more comfortable to read because there's just a lot of stopping and starting involved in reading something like that. Oh, yeah. You know, you're right about the, the point about um, trying to fit as much text on there as possible because newspapers, they have really short sentences sometimes, right? And so they're going to lose yeah, a lot true. of that real estate. Yeah. Now, in your book, it seems like you guys chose about the 95 uh, characters per line. I, I didn't exactly uh, uh, count them, but it, but but it seems like that. And, and I think for technical mm -hmm. writers, there's probably a good reason to go with that longer length uh, mm -hmm. when you have a screenshot, right? If you've got a mm -hmm. tiny column, how are you going to fit that screenshot in there? Do you mean in the in the book itself? Yeah. And in, how long the, the lines are? Yeah. Oh, well, you know what? You give us a lot more credit than we deserve because a lot of the setup of a, of a book like this in a series really kind of comes down from the publisher. That said, I'm not unhappy with it. I think it's given the size of the, the, the type size on, the, on our pages, the line length is pretty comfortable to read. They do break... You're you're very close. You observe the book really closely. Um, it breaks into a couple of columns in some of the sections of the text too, but um, yeah, we didn't have we don't have a lot of say exactly in how, which is kind of um, ironic, isn't it? And <laughs> how a document design book is actually laid out on the page. Yeah, it is. It is kind of you know I thought you'd be very hypersensitive about all these design decisions that you're we making were in the book. pretty hypersensitive <laughs> about making sure that um, the visual elements were really near mentions of them. We are really particular. I mean, we're both very close editors. Um, very careful editors. So we went through a lot of iterations. That said, there's some give and take when you're producing, and you know, any sort of document production, there's some give and take. And so you take some of the um, the limitations that you're given and don't argue about them too much. That was one of them. Um, another one, of course, that we that we ran into when we were dealing with this text was the the limitations of color on the page. You know, you've got a whole chapter about color. And you can't have color images in the book. And so we really were very careful with this text to make our web resources what we thought were pretty darn good. So I think that the color image, all of the images from the text are um, really useful. I think the resources for the color chapter are really useful. Um, I like the exercises too. I mean, I teach a lot of this stuff and I think that um, Instructors want um, exercises that can be completed in a, in a typical class period, and we try to incorporate a lot of that into the book too. Um, but not just for instructors. I mean, I think that people who are working in an industry will be able to work through the exercises and come to a kind of better understanding of the concepts that we were trying to get across, um, the ones that we discuss you know, in the uh, introduction. Yeah, uh, you know, the color, I found the color chapter probably the most interesting. Um, no kidding. Be because, well, this is a, one of these deficiencies in my own understanding, uh, just color. I didn't, I, I'd heard the term color theory, but I, I didn't realize mm -hmm. what defined complementary colors and, and how you choose colors that go with each other. Uh, you mentioned, yeah. let's see where you, uh, 
just recall from memory here, I don't have the quote mm-hmm. with me, but mm-hmm. he said that a complementary color is basically a color that sits across the other, from the other color on the color wheel. On the color wheel, yeah, yeah, that's right, on Itten's color wheel. So this color theory business has been around for a long time. And I think people who go to, into graphic design um, learn a lot more about this. But when we're, you know, people in technical, professional, business communication, I mean, we might not come from this sort of arts background. And I think we learn a lot about document design. We learn a lot about readability. And by that, I mean not just the kind of readability of typefaces, but actually, or comfort of reading of a typeface, but just uh, trying to create text that is uh, maximally clear, comprehensible um, in its content. And we learn a lot about that, but we don't get a lot of, okay, so when we get beyond black and white, where are we? And so we wanted to, to try to address that in that chapter. And we went all the way back to some of the, um, color research that's you know centuries of years old and talking about color wheel and we just wanted to explain some of the the terms and how really color is this um you know made up of other components um and so i think i hope that chapter was successful it's nice to hear that you that you liked it yeah yeah and i know there's psychology behind color but but some of these things mm-hmm. i found really surprising like you said that uh well let me just read a passage here mm-hmm. cool colors mm-hmm. Research suggests that warm colors generate quite different psychological responses than cool colors. Warm colors are considered more rousing and active. They lead to higher, yeah. higher levels of anxiety and great, yeah. greater levels of distraction. Warm colors also appear to have greater ability than cool colors to draw attention, uh, which is yeah. one of the reason, reasons why people use warm colors to emphasize and to make main points. And so, yeah. and then you, you point out that, that uh, cooler colors, you know, uh, uh, can be more peaceful and calming, and you mentioned that um, when people are when people are are looking at download times, if they see a blue hue yeah. associated with it, they 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 uh, think well. The da- yeah, they think the download time is shorter, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna have yeah. to I'm gonna have to pay attention to that next time something is downloading. I mean, Isn't that a that's just such a fascinating um, study, and that's what I that, I mean again, that's what I really like about this book and why I'm why I'm proud of it is you know there is research out there in all of these in, in many different disciplines um, that one comes I believe from a, um, a probably a technical communication um, publication I can't remember exactly where but I thought that study was really fascinating too and it just gets at what color can do for web designers and web developers if you're using a cool color you're gonna actually you know make people think that their do- their download time is less. I think it's really fascinating. It, it, yeah. You also mentioned that uh, blue is apparently a universally liked color across cultures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of research, particularly in the business and marketing re- um, research um, on color. I mean, obviously, you know, you've heard of um, like, let's say a restaurant or, you know, fast food joint like Burger King, you know, why do why do they use warm colors in the, the dining room area, you know, so that people will eat fast and you can get people out and, and move them out and get more people in. So there is something to that. And I think if we we learn about it, we can employ it effectively for the kind of rhetorical purpose that we're that we're trying to generate in a document. Now, with a technical writer scenario, um, 
obviously they're not they're usually not creating a bunch of graphic design posters or anything mm -hmm. but what, what about the subheadings what, what's your recommendation with color and subheadings and other elements well I have any strong recommendations for you know particular colors I mean I think that you know it's a it's a pretty good rule kind of like the sans serif serif one you know that distinction um, to think about blue being your friend because it is universally liked um, it's one it's a pretty easy way I, I've told this to my students too you know if you're talking about um, using color in a document you want you've got one color or rather two colors that you can employ like black and you can pick another one blue is a pretty useful one to use in subheadings if you wanted to make use color as some sort of uh, differentiation um, but I don't have any real strong recommendations for you know using colors and headings. I think that people need to think about the kinds of limitations on the the amount of budget that they have for production and how many colors that they can use if we're talking print. I mean, obviously, if you're talking online, you know you can you have a little bit more freedom. You don't have to worry about um, costs so much. But I think it's pretty, if you look at a lot of websites, you'll see blue being used a lot. It's a pretty safe color, yeah. Well, you know, I hadn't even thought about the scenario where, let's say you, you design a manual and you've got like, I don't know, light blue subheadings, right? Or, or mm -hmm. different, different, different mm -hmm. colors for heading level two and three. You know, mm -hmm. it looks great as you're, as you're designing it, but then the user prints it off and then they're like, you know, they lose all that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, can, especially if it gets copied, you know, it's it, you lose distinctions if it's going to be copied in black and white. So you have to think about how your document's going to be repurposed and what sort of production values are going to be for are going to be limiting you there. Um, yeah, so there's a there's a, a couple of different things I think that we should that you need to think about, particularly in in print. I think uh, another another thing. This is more along the lines of web web design but you talk mm -hmm. about negative versus positive polarity with the mm -hmm. background color mm -hmm. and I, I occasionally I see sites with like a dark background and a light font and you say that's yeah. an example of the negative polarity whereas right. a light background with a dark font is positive polarity mm -hmm. um, and you say that that uh, let's see in studies of web pages uh, that basically the the positive polarity kind of wins out yeah, um, as far as comfort of reading, yeah, that seems to be pretty much the case. And I think you can see that a lot in a lot of the web designs. Um, I, I tell my students, you know, this joke about like Web 1.0 when people were had that kind of Star Wars effect with the black background and the white text. And I think um, web users and web developers are getting a little bit more sophisticated now. But it's a, just another one of those guidelines that comes from research that positive polarity, so a light background, darker text, more comfortable to read, easier to read. Now, w one thing I, I've noticed in a lot of websites is that they may have, they may not have like a white background, but they have like a light tan background or a mm -hmm. creamish color does that fall along the same uh, lines of good practice yeah it does I mean obviously you're going to be thinking about one of those big design principles contrast and is there enough contrast between the background and the text or figure ground in gestalt terms right um, so is there enough of contrast between the two but I don't think that designers or technical communicators need to be um, so limited in their choices that they need to just think about you know 
life in terms of life and design <laughs> in terms of black and white. Yeah. So I think that follows good practice too. Yeah. It, you know, speaking of contrast, that was another point in the book that I that I liked, and I almost wanted to see more of it. Um, you mentioned in one spot that uh, you said an instructor mentioned that uh, our eyes actually feel pleasure when they experience strong contrast and our eyes are drawn to the contrast. Yeah. You want to comment on that? Like how, how can people use contrast in document design? Is it just varying the, the size of the font or, or the widths or what? Oh, well, that's definitely one thing for sure. But so you can also think about it in terms of color, in terms of using colors that are really saturated versus ones that aren't, um, light versus dark. All of this has to do with color and those components of color. Size is one way to develop contrast. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. But we can think in terms of shape. Even, um, let's just say, uh, in terms of letter form, like all capital letters are more blocky, right, in shape. And that, um, in contrast with just regular upper lowercase text, that creates contrast too. And I think it's just a basic value of, of, of who we are as humans and our psychology that we are attracted to things that contrast against each other. So technical communicators, if they know something about that sort of principle and ways to employ it um, effectively, they can create better documents. And not just ones, I mean, better in a lot of ways, better in, in ones that are more usable um, and have and, and kind of tap into what is aesthetically pleasing. Now I want to get into actually my absolute favorite part of the book, which um, oh. <laughs> it, 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 you, you mentioned this like th in three separate places, but you brought up this dual coding theory, oh. Oh, which, okay. you know, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with. But at the same time, mm. it's, it's a feeling I've had for a long time. And I was glad to see that it had a name and that it had mm -hmm. a lot of research around it. Um, yeah. Do you want to explain what dual coding theory kind of is and why people should... Yeah, yeah. So in order to kind of understand dual coding theory, you have to think about um, that we have different modes in which we can receive verbal and visual input. So think about this. If it's very, very difficult for most of us to read the newspaper or to read a website, verbal information um, coming through our eyes, we can, it's very difficult for us to read and then listen and understand the radio, so getting oral verbal um, language at the same time. So we can't process both of these inputs very well at the same time. And in fact, you might find yourself reading a little bit, then paying a little bit more attention to the radio, then going back to your reading, then paying more attention to the radio. So it's you can't do it simultaneously. Dual coding theory says that one thing we can do effectively is we can get one kind of verbal input, but it, then we can also take in simultaneously visual input, so visual language, for lack of a better term. If we can have verbal language and visual language, dual codes, we can process them both at the same time. And so if, for instance, you have somebody up doing a presentation in front of the PowerPoint slides, if that person is talking and showing some sort of visual, a photograph, a diagram, something like that behind them, then your, that audience can 
dual code that input they can take in the verbal language that's getting spoken and they can see and understand the visual language that is going on behind them that's being projected on the screen so that's dual coding theory in a nutshell it says we can take in two modes we can take in two sources of input but one's got to be verbal and one's got to be visual now of course this actually gets more complex when we start thinking in terms of um, people and, and their age. So for someone like me, you know, I'm about 40 years old, um, I'm pretty sure that dual coding theory works for me, that I can take in verbal language in one, in one mode and I can take in visual language and I can't read and listen to the radio at the same time. But I really wonder, and I think that there's probably some um, some research that's that's going on about younger people and their use of multimedia, and whether or not they're just a little bit more proficient at taking in, say, two verbal modes at the same time. I, this is something I need to learn more about. I think all of us are going to have to learn more about it, to be honest, because I think you know, the times they are changing. And I wonder if people's brains are too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you, you bring up the, uh, it, in the PowerPoint chapter or the presentation chapter, that's where mm -hmm. you bring up the fact that when people mix the verbal and the oral code by having a bunch of notes on their slide as they're talking, that just, yeah. you know, that's a disaster. I think we all, yeah. we, I mean, we yeah, all wish that people would not do that in their PowerPoints. Right. But, uh, yeah. but, but the same thing doesn't quite happen in documents. I see so many, whether it's a, uh, even a blog post or a technical instruction how-to, uh, mm -hmm. the visual element is really just kind of forgotten. And I wonder if that's partly because so many technical writers come from writer backgrounds where they're used yeah. to working with just text or they're used to being in English departments where text is the only thing emphasized. And suddenly they're a technical communicator now mm -hmm. and they, they have this whole like realm of graphics and design that they have to bring in but they don't have any kind of instruction or training or background in doing no that. i think you're spot on i think that's exactly what's been the problem with a lot of the visual elements in technical documents um back in the day when there was more budget you know that technical communicators could rely on illustrators you know people who were professionally trained to think about um concepts in terms of uh, visual language but we don't really have that anymore and so people have to wear several hats and it's kind of been a lost wealth art you know um but i think i think that that's going to change too i'm kind of optimistic about this because what i see going on in technical communication programs at like say the master level and even the phds that are going on in technical and professional communication um, as a, a much more concentration on, on visual design, on visuals. Um, there's more research on it. Now, it's just burgeoning. I mean, it's just starting. But I think the people who are coming up and going into, you know, even if you're not going into academia, but if you're getting a, a, a degree, bachelor's or master's degree in tech comm, now I think you're going to get that sort of training in, in visuals. And uh, I don't think that that was something that was necessarily the case, even like, let's say in 2000. 
Yeah, and I think this is where your book is is just really essential because you you fill in this gap that's so so often missing about all these visuals. Mm-hmm. In, in another chapter, you get into the different difference between image formats: the GIF, the PNG, the JPEG, mm-hmm. the TIFF. Mm-hmm. You know, and you really you really clearly define those and and when they should be used. Do you find that uh, a lot of your students that you have um, uh, are, are just kind of baffled by different formats and different different uh, things like this you know it 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 varies um well i gotta first of all just talk about two of the um the folks that we brought in to help us with some of these these chapters and one is carl stolly and he's at illinois institute of technology with Catherine riley my co-author and he wrote our web chapter and then another author that we had working with us is named jim magicanus and he did our um photography chapters um and so those two, those two fellows really did a great job in explaining all these different file types. You know, my students come from a variety of backgrounds. Some of them come from computer science. Some of them come from um, English. Some of them um, come from, like, let's say education. They vary in their sort of practice that they've had with, with visual items. I find that we do have to teach quite a bit of this and how these different file types are used most effectively. And it's, you know, it's, it takes a sort of um, dedicated document design class, like the kind we're getting at, I think, where you can kind of get into the down and dirty about what is resolution and how is it different on screen than in a print document and what kinds of um, freedoms does, does that afford you when you're talking about print documents versus online documents. So I don't know if I have a, a straight answer. My, my students are really are varied and I, they come with different strengths and it also depends on if they've had a lot of industry experience. Um, I know at Illinois Institute of Technology I was really it was just a wonderful thing to work with um, a lot of people who came from industry backgrounds and were trained in I mean, working in web design and really um, sophisticated print design, working with InDesign and creating you know, user guides and manuals. Um, and that, that's the case too at Auburn, um, but they vary. Um, but that's one thing, yeah, I think that pretty much we have to touch on every single time is those different file types, yeah. Yeah. Hey, now, uh, you, you mentioned something else that I, I really liked in this book about gamma correction. Um, at, at my work, all the designers, they're Mac people, and, and the rest of the company has PCs. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, split in terms of computer software. But the problem is that these designers, you know, they're creating prototypes mm-hmm. that are full of color for different applications. And you point out something about gamma correction and how that can lead people astray between a Mac and a PC experience with light and dark colors. Did you want to expand on that at all? You know, I'm going to have to look for the page on that <laughs> one. I'm sorry. I cannot remember uh, That's all right. what That's we right. said about it. I will, I will refresh your memory. <laughs> it's on page 216. I took careful notes because this is something that really I run into a lot at work. Which <laughs> chapter was um, this in? Uh, I just wrote down page numbers, 216. Oh. So, oh, okay. so uh, basically... Mm-hmm. You say that um, Windows users, PCs, have a gamma correction value of 2.2, whereas Mac users have a gra- gamma correction of 1.8, which basically means that on a Windows machine, darker colors uh, closer to black are going to kind of 
Well, darker colors are going to look closer to black, and lighter colors are going to have less brightness. But on a Mac, um, these lighter colors are, are just going to be brighter and so forth. So, so if somebody designs a prototype that's got like dark colors and maybe they've got contrast between the dark colors mm -hmm. and it looks mm -hmm. good on their machine, but then they give it to a Windows user and the dark colors suddenly kind of fade into each other mm -hmm. or, um, a, a, and so forth. And I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. um, I, anyway, I really <laughs> like that point because now I, now I have some kind of factual <laughs> evidence to say, look, the gamma correction on your machine is, you know, <laughs> so forth, rather than just saying, oh, on my, my screen, it looks well, I whatever. Think, and then the I think you're probably touching on one of the the, really, the technical um, technical points brought up by, I think it's probably either Carl Stoller or Jim Machicanus. And like I said, these two people really know their stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, gamma correction, I'm not an expert in it. And I think that uh, my co-authors probably covered that topic pretty well. Yeah, well, um, I mean, throughout your book, you have lots of great, great information in a lot of different areas. We didn't even touch on like uh, uh, alignment and so forth, but uh, maybe we can hit upon that because that's that was one more area mm -hmm, I wanted to mm -hmm. hit. Um, so this comes back to uh, the tone of your document. Mm. You mentioned that if you want kind of a more professional tone, sometimes people go with full, justified. Full, yeah, alignment. full justification, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, full justification. Yeah, no, sorry. no, that's it's funny you bring that up because it's just something that I was a real stickler on in my technical editing class just last week when they took their midterm um, because they were talking about justification. I said, I think what you're trying to talk about is fully justified text, which create more formality. And you got to, um, I sound like I'm scolding you. <laughs> it's, it's, what really what we're talking about is when the um, the text is lines up with both margins on the page. Um, so you see it in books, and it does you know it, it tends to have a more formal look to it. And that's as opposed to at least when we're reading in English, ragged right, where you know the edge of the right margin um, of your text um, kind of varies according to the line length and where the word breaks. So in fully justified text that can create a more formal tone, ragged right, a less formal tone. But when you're doing something in um, fully justified text, it increases the sort of um, variables that you're going to have to consider. And one of them is the way that the software is going to space out the words um, to, to fill out the entire line. And when that happens, when there are big words on a line, you can get a lot of white space. And I think we've all seen that, like speaking of newspaper prints, where there might only be two words on a line and a lot of white space in between them. It creates what's these rivers of white in a paragraph or across a page. And I think that's one of the, oh, not dangers so much, but one of the considerations of trying to use fully justified text. And that's why um, I think some knowledge of typography is really helpful because it can help you think about what's called um, kerning, the space in between letters um, and words to try to um, modulate that so that you get a nice readable line of text. Now that's what we were getting at now, with alignment. Now, now with fully justified mm -hmm. text, um, like, for example, in your book, the way the, the, that was laid out, um, I don't see the, the rivers of white that you're talking mm. about because the, there's hyphenated yeah. words at the end that will, will kind of hyphenate so that you don't get a That's bunch right. of variable spacing. Yeah. 
Uh, so do you think, I guess that's kind of a compromise, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you get the hyphens, but, uh, yeah. um, but, but you don't get the rivers of white. That's right. So. You still have to think about it a little bit because you will get that. So you're not going to get rivers of white if, if you're using hyphens, or at least it's going to decrease it. Um, but again, that's those variables too. You have to start thinking about, okay, where your software is going to stick in hyphens, um, you know, where it thinks that there's a syllable break. But it's important to think about, okay, is that really where you want it to go as someone who speaks and knows the language? So you have to give some thought to that too. For instance, software might not know that what you're using is a proper noun and it might split up, you know, uh, somebody's name. So you don't want that to happen. So it's more that you have to think about. Um, but again, I mean, it creates a professional look, it creates a nice, a nice look. You also pointed out that this comes back to this idea of symmetry, right? And that things that are symmetrical tend to be uh, very, I mean, whether it's the typeface or the alignment tend Mm. to convey a more serious professional tone. And I noticed something, I don't remember if you pointed this out in the book or not, but I was looking at google.com and I noticed the last E in Google is slanted. You know, it's not, it's no longer symmetrical. And I thought, oh, maybe they're trying to convey a more playful kind of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Hey, I got one last. I okay. have one last question here. Um, tell me about the image on the front cover of the book. Uh, what does it mean, and why did you choose that? Well, one? you know, it's again part of book production. Um, about uh, you know, you get some suggestions from the from the people that you work with when you're putting together a text. Um, but this image was one that really was one of the first to create a a sort of integration of verbal and visual elements and it gained some recognition for that. Um, so we went through a lot of different options when we were looking at you know, what kind of cover art do we want to use. Um, but we liked what we saw there because we thought, well, that's exactly what we're getting at, is really the importance of considering not just the verbal language that I think as technical communicators, we all think about quite a bit but the ways that we can effectively integrate it into our documents and how having a little bit of research-driven background, research knowledge, um, goes a long way in creating more uh, unified, usable texts um, that convey the kind of tone that you want them to and uh, still can be you know, aesthetically pleasing. So. Uh, I think I think that's the reason that that we chose it. It was kind of a, a collaboration with our editor and um, thinking about okay, really, what is the central theme of this text? And that's integrating verbal and visual. Well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a that's a good way to end it too because uh, you know that brings together kind of the main point of the book is I can see how that's a that's a fitting oh, choice you. there. So, so Joe. Uh, Again, the book, so for our listeners, the book is Visual Composing, Document Design for Print and Digital Media by Catherine Riley and Joe Makowitz. And if they want to buy a copy, where do well, they find it? I can go it? to the Pearson website, but probably the easiest place, I guess, is um, Amazon.com. You know, all the usual places. And if people want to learn more about you, do you have an email address or website you want yeah, to direct absolutely. people to? My website is um, www.joemakowitz.com, and it's J O. M-A-C-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z dot com. 
All right. Well, thanks for coming on to the podcast today. I appreciate your insight and, and, and all the Thank info you Thank you so you much for taking the time and for such interesting questions. I, it was really a pleasure.